I'm so delighted that you uh, were able to come today. And I appreciate uh, having this opportunity to talk to you uh, about uh, Dharma and uh, things Buddhist. Uh, I hope that that's what you came for. Uh, <laughs> do you ever, I don't know if you've ever done this, but been on an airplane, and every now and then, uh, the, the employees of the airline start their safety briefing, where they tell you to fasten your seatbelt. They start their safety briefing by saying something to the effect of, I hope all of you are going to this destination because that's where we're going. And you know, it's actually happened twice when I've been on an airplane and somebody said, oh my gosh, I'm not going to Los Angeles, and they got off the plane. <laughs> so it's my hope that, uh, that uh, you're all coming to uh, visit Columbus KTC today. Uh, and I, I appreciate your coming in. Um, the, as, as mentioned, I, I do need to say, uh, I've put a, I put a commercial message at the beginning, but you don't need to zone out because it, it'll be interesting, trust me. Um, um, the, um, the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism has uh, a, a unique feature in that it teaches mantra practice as a method of uh, cultivation of virtue. And also, it teaches mantra practice as a method of cultivating an awareness of and a connection to our own Buddha nature. If you remember, the sort of good news, if you want to call it that, of Buddhism is that uh, all beings have the potential to wake up and be Buddhas. Every being has the potential to awaken and be a Buddha. And that we need to make a connection with those methods that will help us to awaken our Buddha nature and to uncover our Buddha nature and live out our Buddha nature. And that that's really what all the methodology of Buddhism is about. It's about helping us to uncover and to live out our Buddha nature. And so uh, in the Tibetan tradition, we have the three yanas, the Hinayana, the Mahayana, and the Vajrayana. The Hinayana is the basic, uh, you would call it um, the uh, basic path of individual liberation from suffering. And it deals with the Buddha's very earliest teachings, where he said, do no harm, practice virtue, and tame your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So these are his basic teachings for individuals' liberation from suffering. The Buddha taught we are what we think, all that we are arises with our thoughts, and with our thoughts we make the world. And this forms the basis of Buddhist ethics. And so in the Hinayana, the vehicle of individual liberation, the Buddha emphasized mindfulness and meditation as a way of uncovering all of our hidden faults, obstacles, and obscurations that prevent us from experiencing our Buddha nature. And so the Buddhist ethics is about not harming and about benefiting others. And that's what's taught in the Hinayana. In the Mahayana, the Buddha, his teachings uh, progressed, and he began to talk about the need for love and compassion toward ourselves and love and compassion toward all beings who are in this ocean that the, uh, the Buddha called samsara, or uh, this cyclic existence uh, whose characteristic, main characteristic, is suffering. So since we're all in this together, we're all in this samsara together, the Mahayana, or the vehicle for the liberation of all, emphasized our connection to others and how we can provide love, compassion, and comfort to others through 
the practice of bodhicitta. Bodhi means awakening and citta means mind, so this mind of awakening. And the Vajrayana, the third of the three yanas, uh, is called the indestructible yana or the indestructible vehicle or path because it deals with the indestructible Buddha nature that is within us and it uses methods to work with, nurture, and realize this. And a mantra, mantra practice and visualization practice are part of this because if someone were to tell us, oh, you have Buddha nature, we might say, mm-hmm, but maybe not really believe it. But if we were asked to visualize ourselves as the Bodhisattva Chenrezig, uh, made of uh, white light, and recite the mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum, which is the speech of Chenrezig. The body of Chenrezig is his form, made of light. The speech of Chenrezig is his mantra. And then the, uh, the basis, or the enlightened mind of Chenrezig is his wisdom. And so if we were to use our imagination to connect with those things, then this would be a way of cultivating our Buddha nature through the Buddha nature itself. Well, these three yanas, Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, are part of our center's name. Karma takes some choling. Karma means we're of the family of Karmapa, the Karma Kaju lineage. Teksum means three vehicles, Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. And Chuling means Dharma place, the place of the Buddhist teaching. So, as a Tibetan Buddhist center, you could say we're actually uh, a home for three yana Buddhism. Not just Vajrayana Buddhism, but three yana Buddhism. And the practice uh, that uh, they've asked me to talk about today, um, just for a, a moment here in the morning, and I mean, it's the beginning of the talk is that um, they wanted me to mention that uh, we do a retreat here every, every year that is based on a pra the practice of the three yanas. That retreat is called the Nyungne retreat. Uh, the, the word uh, Nyungne uh, refers to uh, fasting practice, and so uh, this particular retreat uses Hinayana ethics, Mahayana heart, and Vajrayana methodology. Uh, we take vows, that's the Hinayana part, and uh, for two and a half days we are, we, we are as monks and nuns. You'll be the briefest monastic ordination you've ever had. It only lasts for the period of the, of the uh, two days of the, uh, of the retreat, and those vows will be surrendered on at dawn on the final day. But for that period of two and a half days, we, uh, we don't participate in singing and dancing. Nuns and monks cannot sing or dance. So you can leave the dance tracks at home. Uh, there will be uh, no a sitting like royalty on high thrones or seats. Uh, there will be uh, no uh, courtship behavior, uh, and so forth and so on. And so for that two and a half days, we will have as our main object the, the recitation of the compassion mantra, Omane Pei Mei Hong, and uh, the recitation of a, an elaborate ritual of Chenrezig, where we visualize the Chenrezig that has a thousand arms. And we talk about developing compassion and goodness, not just for ourselves, but for all beings. And in fact, we use our visualization power to imagine that we are benefiting all sentient beings.
And so uh, the fast, I think maybe you heard the fasting part and your ears may have perked up a bit. Uh, the fast occurs uh, on the very first day and on the second day as well. The first day, you could call it a half day of fasting because uh, we have a lunch that day, but in the afternoon and evening, all we do is uh, drink juice or tea or uh, water. Uh, the following day, uh, we practice fasting all day. No, no eating that day, and we also do not drink that day. And so uh, that not eating, not drinking is also uh, accompanied by not talking. As you can see, it would be a great challenge for me to do in Yongne, because I love to talk. But one of the functions of the retreat is to make us aware of the suffering of beings in other realms. By being hungry and thirsty and not talking, we emulate the sufferings of beings in uh, lower realms of existence, where they are always hungry, or where they're always thirsty, and where they're always unable to express themselves. And so by understanding their suffering, we develop more compassion for those beings in our world who cannot eat, cannot drink, and cannot speak. So on the final day of the retreat, the retreat ends uh, around dawn on the last day, there's a, a, a large breakfast that is served. It truly is breaking the fast. It breaks the fast. We get uh, a juice and, uh, and uh, water and so forth to drink, refreshing ourselves. And then we complete the chanting, dedicating uh, the goodness of our fast to all sentient beings. And praying that all beings are free from hunger, all beings are free from thirst, and all beings are free from the condition of having no one to speak to. The idea that they're free from this loneliness that comes from the isolation of not being able to speak and communicate. So the idea is that by slowly and gradually understanding the sufferings of others, we come to have more compassion for ourselves and for others. So that's the function of this retreat. Some people may say, well, sounds interesting, but I don't know, fasting for two days? I don't think so. Well then, sign up for the first day and come to the first day. And then uh, uh, you can go home uh, the following day or uh, whatever you like. Mm. This is going to take place in Newark, Ohio at the Saints Peter and Paul Catholic Retreat Center. I've been there many times. It's in the woods. It's very nice. And, uh, and we set up a shrine there and we have done... Uh, we have done many, many days of practice there in the past. And so I'm pretty jazzed about the whole idea of going out there. It'll be led by Lama Tom. Lama Tom Broadwater will lead the practice. And uh, he will be there the entire weekend and will give the vows and give the instruction and uh, be your cheerleader as you, uh, as you are, attend the retreat. So if you'd like to attend just the first day, just attend the first day, the Saturday. Or, and the Friday night would be helpful, too. So just come on Friday night, stay overnight Friday to Saturday, and that way you'll also get the reading transmission and permissions uh, for the text. So that's, uh, that's uh, the thing. Are there any questions about this? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm sorry? 
Uh, the dates of it? Yeah, the dates of it. It is the third weekend in January. Uh, let's, let's get the exact dates. Okay, let's see. Hang on. The exact dates are January. It's the third weekend in January, which would be uh, Friday the 19th, Saturday the 20th, Sunday the 21st, and then the retreat ends before uh, 7 a.m. on Monday the 22nd. If people have to work, they can uh, try to drive home Sunday night, but I don't think it's a good idea. I think people, if uh, they need to get back to work, should uh, just tell their boss they have an appointment. I mean, people can have appointments to see their dentists and get off work, and they have an appointment to see their llamas and get off work. I don't know. Maybe not. Anyway, uh, so did that satisfy your question? Yeah. And then, Aran, you had a question. You can. You can register on the Columbus KTC website. And you can give instructions if you only wish to attend the one day. The, the price will be based on which day you attend. Uh, some people, if the weather's good enough, uh, you might just want to drive out and, uh, and just attend the pujas. I think you can do that. But if you're eating on campus, on, on site, or you're staying overnight, you will have to make a donation for that. Does that help? Did that answer? Yeah. Okay. Other, other questions? Anybody, anybody who's ever done one like to say something about it? Bill, would you like to say a couple things about That's right. You went, yeah. You uh, he went up uh, with Lama Tom to Wisconsin and did uh, four in a row with Lama uh, Sultram Yeshe. Yeah. Yeah. And Tim, did you have something you wanted to share? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, how and uh, Haley, did you did you yeah because you've done them. Yeah. What do you think? My experience of it personally, because I've done a few myself too, is that uh, the, kind of, uh, the kind of healing I've experienced from it has been, uh, a lot of it has been a healing from worry and fixation. I've had a lot of, of that because when you're doing a lot of mantra, like Omane Peme Home, when you're doing a lot of mantra practice, um, a lot of the worries fall away, at least for the time that you're doing the mantras. And I think that that's really refreshing. And I also think that being away from your everyday life and the humdrum of your everyday life and the concerns and the worries, that also helps people. The other thing I think is that imagining that you are Chenrezig benefiting all suffering beings, that's very healing. And, um, and I've actually met a few people, such as yourself, who've said that they, that they feel better, their bodies feel better after they've done 
one of these retreats, that the bodies actually feel better. And it's meant also to purify negative karma, because uh, by choosing to be hungry and choosing to be thirsty and choosing to be uh, mute, what one does is one causes oneself a, a, a manageable, a fully manageable, as the gentleman said, a fully manageable hardship that helps them to become aware of their own suffering and to help them become aware of the suffering of others. And this also is very purifying because, um, uh, because if you choose this path, if you choose this discomfort, it's different than if you... Um, than if you're forced into it by outer circumstances and then become resentful. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, so, so it's like that. And by clearing away that karma, it can be like, feel the, you know, whatever yeah. manifestations that might yeah. occur. Right. Right. So thank you. And I want to else have a comment? That, 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 yes, that, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of peaceful feelings when you finish, and it's like you accomplished it. And it's a, and it, there's a, there's a, I'd like to say it's like a, a feeling of release, like, not only, I mean, because as you say, the gentlemen were saying that some people think it might be challenging, and then when you uh, arrive at the end of that challenge, and you uh, succeeded in that challenge, that's one thing. But then there's also the effect of, of two days of mantra recitation, which I think is no small thing. I think that's what you're getting at too, Haley, is that there's, it's no small thing to sit and do all of that type of practice. It's like you're coming out of a bubble. I don't know. Yeah. You're in that bubble of mm -hmm. right. It makes some people hungry for retreat, which I think is a kind of a good thing. You know, it's kind of a safe way to have retreat because you don't have to go out in a cabin in the woods by yourself, but you can be with other people, and it's a supportive environment. And I think that's the other part of it that I liked a lot, is that there are other people with you. So, anything else you want to share? Okay. All right, well, uh, thank you for, um, for being patient while I uh, talked about this. And uh, by the way, uh, Ron, when I write the description of today's talk, I'll make sure that an explanation of the Nyungnei is put in the title so that people will know if they want to have a little bit of information. The practice of Nyungnei goes back centuries, centuries. Um, it goes back even to Indian Buddhism, Indian Buddhism, uh, because the, the first Nyungnei practitioner uh, was... Um, the, the nun who is known in Tibetan as the nun Palmo, but uh, she could also be called uh, the renunciate Lakshmi because that's her uh, Hindu name. And uh, she was uh, a princess who suffered from leprosy and uh, underwent an exile in the wilderness with her leprosy because it was thought to be uh, very uh, dangerous uh, for others to be around, people with that disease. And so she was exiled uh, uh, in an internal sort of exile in her father's kingdom in a wilderness uh, where, she, where everyone thought she had gone to die. But uh, she um, experienced the presence of Chenrezig and uh, actually uh, formed uh, a bond with him and uh, was very devoted to him and recited his mantra and fasted every other day. And she did this for a very long time and was eventually cured of her leprosy uh, through this practice. And, uh, and so uh, she became a proponent of this practice uh, among uh, 
Buddhists, both in India and uh, then later when Buddhism went to Tibet, uh, it became well known in Tibet also. And so whether we call her the, the renunciant Lakshmi or we call her Gelongma Palmo, it's the same. So uh, it's, a, it's a practice that uses the outer discipline of the Hinayana, the inner motivation of compassion and love of the Mahayana, and then the most inner practice of the Vajrayana mantra and visualization. So that's why you could call it a three-yana practice. It's all in one. So thank you for letting me talk about that. Uh, second thing I was going to do today, uh, if those of you who were here last week, um, I mentioned that I'm going to be, uh, I, I did bring my notebook today, and I will be writing down any ideas you have for Dharma talks you would like to hear um, in the coming months. Uh, because I like, to, I like to do a certain number of Dharma talks chosen by the community every year. As you know, I love to talk about stuff that's of interest to me, but I also want to talk about things that are of interest to you. And, uh, and so I'll be doing that in a few minutes. But in the meantime, um, I was asked to talk about uh, the practice of um, bodhicitta, love and compassion today. And it's a good, it's a good thing to talk about for uh, the new year. And uh, because that's coming really soon. And uh, I will be talking briefly tomorrow um, during the first lights uh, ceremony. Uh, they'll be, we'll be doing the offering of lamps um, tomorrow morning uh, between 7 and 7.30 a.m. It will not be in this room, uh, but it will be at the Center for Pragmatic Buddhism, the Zen Center on Dublin Road. Um, I'm trying to remember the address off the top of my head, but it's... 1225, right? 1225 Dublin Road. And we uh, just look for the luminaria. I think it's, we're going to have, we're going to have candles outside. Mm. And then we'll be in the lower level and we'll be lighting lamps and, uh, and reciting the Chenrezig practice uh, to start the new year off right. And uh, I'll be giving a short Dharma talk and there will be food. So uh, come on down. But uh, today I wanted to talk a little bit about Bodhicitta. And I brought my favorite book. The Great Path of Awakening with me, and um, and I thought it would be good for me to talk about one uh, of the particular slogans uh, for my talk today. Uh, and um, if anybody uh, here has a slogan that they have heard and uh, would like an explanation of, I will do that first. And if not, I will look one up. Does anybody has anybody studied this before? Yeah. Okay. Uh, anybody have uh, anything in Lojong or any of the Lojong slogans that you'd like to have uh, explained today? If not, I will. I will use yes. Drive all blames into one. Okay. Drive all blames into one. Okay. I like that one. Has anybody read uh, Pema Chodron's book Start Where You Are? Okay. Uh, she has a, a language joke in there. Uh, drive all blames into one. Yeah. When she first started practicing Buddhism, um, she misunderstood the slogan, and she thought that they were talking about a guy named Juan. I know. It, I'm sure it gets a laugh when she tells it now, but it's you know it's kind of funny. Interestingly enough, the maintenance guy here is named Juan, but I I don't dare tell him this story because I don't think he'll understand. But uh, yeah, I know. Um, if we look at, um, and so that's the, the slogan I'll, I'll talk about for, we'll talk about it for about seven minutes and then we'll do uh, some, um, uh, some 
Q&A and maybe a little meditation, and then we'll take questions and such. Um, if we look at the whole path of Buddhism, remember those statements, do no harm, practice virtue, tame your mind. That, that was the practice, the path that the Buddha gave us. Because he said, we are what we think, all that we are arises with our thoughts, and with our thoughts we make the world. In other words, how we think about things determines how we experience things. And if we are always harming others or harming ourselves, we will never experience peace. We will never experience peace if we are always harming ourselves or harming others. And so that's why the first thing he said was, do no harm. Don't harm yourself, don't harm others, because otherwise your mind will never be at peace. The second thing that he said was, practice virtue, meaning take care of yourself and benefit others. Help others who are suffering. So when we take care of ourselves and benefit others, what we are doing is promoting a mind that is virtuous on the inside, that is kind and loving and compassionate on the inside. And that allows us to have more peace. If we, uh, if we are always, if our mind is always worried about what's going to happen to me, what's going to become of me, uh, how can I get the better of these people who are my enemies, we're never going to have any peace. But if we're thinking about such things as, how can I care for myself? How can I care for others? How can I help ease the suffering of myself? How can I help ease the suffering of others? Our mind will be more at peace because we'll be moving in a direction that is not selfish. If you remember the Buddha's teaching on the Four Noble Truths, suffering is part of life, suffering has a cause, suffering has a solution, and there's a path. Under that second noble truth where he says, uh, Suffering has a cause. This, the cause of suffering is not the boss or the neighbor or anything else. The, suffer, the cause of suffering is our own fixation and clinging, our own grasping and clinging. And so if grasping and clinging is the problem that brings us lack of peace and suffering, then learning how to let go, how to let go in the healthy way, how to let go in the right way, is what we should be doing. And that's how we promote inner peace is through learning how to let go. That's the whole function of quiet sitting meditation called shamatha, is to learn how to let go of thoughts. If you can let go of one thought, even just one, that means that slowly you can work with anything that comes up in your mind. And that also helps to promote peace. Now you may say, what does this have to do with one? Or, or one, drive all blames into one. What does that have to do with it? If we look at the, um, at the Buddha's teaching about suffering and its cause, what he's saying is that by grasping and clinging, we cause a lot of our own suffering, and we are not peaceful, and we're not free. So he says we have to learn how to let go. And one of the ways to learn how to let go is to learn how to deal with misfortune. Because when we experience misfortune, I don't know about you, but when I experience misfortune, sometimes I look for people to blame. Maybe, maybe you guys don't do this, but I do. 
And, uh, and when something goes wrong, you look and say, okay, who can I pin this on? Is this, whose fault is this? And what we'll end up doing then is looking outward and thinking, oh, it's that person's fault, or it's that situation's fault, or it's that person's fault, or it's that person's fault. We'll point outward, away, outside of ourselves. We'll point outward. And we won't bother to look within and see how much of it might be our part. Maybe we're too shy to look at our part. Maybe we're too overwhelmed to look at our part. Maybe we're just too proud to look at our part. But for whatever reason, we're not looking at our part. We then blame externally. And this slogan, drive all blame into one, means not to blame externally when misfortune strikes. It's basically a first aid measure. I mean, I was a Girl Scout. Anybody, any other Girl Scouts? Oh, cool. Hi. Hi. I, I, I was a Girl Scout through high school. Anybody else? Okay, so I'm a nerd. We're a nerd. Oh, yes. Okay, very good. It's great to be. It's great to be Girl Scouts in high school. Nobody, nobody supports you in high school, but it's cool. I loved it. Anyway, but so what, when you're in scouting, when you, you, know, you, you learn how to take care of things. You learn how to, you know, to, to pull things together and help other people and do what needs to be done in any situation. You get skills that you can then learn to use and help others. Uh, and, but when we're, uh, we're, when we're not lucky enough to be scouts and learn the scout law and uh, all of that stuff and how to be kind and good to others, we grow up thinking when bad things happen, it's somebody else's fault. And we have to go find that person and blame them and so forth. So what this is saying, it's like a, it's like a law. It's, like, it's saying if something goes wrong, don't do what you usually do. And that's really, that's really what's happening in this slogan. The writer of this slogan, Chikawa Yeshi Dorje, is saying, I know y'all like to blame other people when things go wrong, but don't do that. Don't do what you usually do. Instead, look to your own part. Look to your own part. Say, what's, what's my part of this? What's my part? I have a lot of friends in the 12-step tradition, and they, uh, and they talk about uh, taking a fearless moral inventory uh, as a way of saying, be self-honest about who you are and who you've been. Look at all the times you've been the cause of suffering to others. And you can sit here and think right now, oh, maybe there was one or two situations where I caused harm to others. And so maybe this, uh, this harm I caused to others set up my experience of this harm right now. Maybe that's what set up my experiencing this harm right now, because I caused harm to others. So now I have actually opened myself up to the possibility of feeling the same thing myself. And so when it says drive all blames into one, what it is saying is don't do what you all usually do, which is blame other people. Instead, look at your part and say, how did I contribute to this? And, uh, and really, what really deserves, if you, you, you want to lay blame somewhere, uh, put it on your fixation 
and your clinging and grasping and selfishness. I don't, maybe you guys don't have that. I got it. it I got it bad. I got this selfishness thing really bad. I feel like I'm the, the central character in my own novel. Like I'm the main character in this movie that is my life. And all the other people are just, you know, characters. And some of them are supporting me and some of them are my enemies. Um, the idea is that we all have an idea about what we think is happening in our lives. And we all have a story to tell about our lives. And uh, again, this is not talking about any of you, but I happen to be the hero of my own story. So it's hard for me to accept that I've ever harmed anybody, but I have to. I have to admit that in the past I've been that person. And so if I've been that person, then I need to accept that someday I may be also the person who experiences pain. I have to be open to that possibility that someday I will have pain and that blaming others does not make that pain go away. And so when it says drive all blame into one, it's not saying blame yourself or dislike yourself. It's saying blame the bad habit of grasping and being selfish and clinging. Look at that bad habit as the cause of your suffering not this other person or this other thing. Now, this is not to say that if you are in a bad situation, you should not get out of it. As one Tibetan Lama once said, uh, just because you're compassionate doesn't mean you have to be wrong-headed. You know? If somebody is harming you, get out of the situation. So it's not saying that, but it's saying that, <clears throat> that if, when we blame externally, for the bad things that happen to us, then we develop more resentment and we develop more sadness and more powerlessness and more helplessness. And so why not say, oh, wait a minute, I know what this is. I know what this misfortune is. This is me thinking my life should be perfect. This is me thinking my life should have no suffering in it at all. That somehow all the suffering should have been delivered to this other person instead. I got it by mistake. And so that's what I understand by the slogan, drive all blame into one, which I think has two parts. The first part of the slogan is, don't do what you usually do, which is blame externally. And when you don't blame externally, then what you're left with is seeing your own part and taking responsibility for your own part. And to do that with love and compassion toward yourself not hatred or dislike towards yourself, but doing it with love and compassion towards yourself and saying, what I'm going to do from now on is I'm going to try my best not to harm others. So that's, you know, sort of, that's where, where I go with it. It's like, if, if all this is down to my grasping and clinging, okay, then grasping and clinging, I'm going to work on you. And that's what we will do with the one. We're not going to chase them away with a stick. We're going to work with them and turn them into something positive. So that's, that's what I can say it this morning on that. You're welcome. I'm glad you asked. So uh, now it's time to open it up and see if other people have questions, thoughts, if you want to suggest uh, Dharma talks for the coming year. We're open for business.
I had, there was a sign over there that we used during uh, the, the, the Franklinton uh, Festival that said, Ask a Llama. I should go get my Ask a Llama sign. Ask a Llama. Anything you want to know? I may know the answer. Yes, sir. Accidents in the context of karma. This is super interesting, because I've questioned Kempo Karta Rinpoche, the founder of the center, extensively on this subject. Um, it's tricky. It's tricky. Because Kempo Karta Rinpoche's meditation master, when he was young and growing up, told him that not every external thing that happens to you is karmic. Blue is mind. Because he'd grown up going to Buddhist philosophy classes where it's all karma, all karma, all karma. But, but when after he told us this, and we all started going, started scratching our heads about this, and it turned into like a sixth grade, it, tur it turned into my version of sixth grade catechism class. Anybody else? Catholic? Okay. Sixth grade, Father, is it a sin if I do such and so and such and so? I mean, we get crazy about these things, right? So, so it turned into that kind of questioning. And what I came to understand, which means it might be imperfect, but this is what I got from what he explained. The actual happenings that happen to you may not be your karma. But the suffering you experience is your karma. Okay? So the illness you get may not be karmic, but your suffering of that from that illness is. I know, that's weird. And it's like it's like, what is it? Splitting hairs, right? But I can see how that would be. Because what he said was that in in Tibetan, in the Tibetan philosophy and how they look at, at the happenings of this world. Rinpoche said his meditation master said that many things that happen, you and I would call them accidents, but Rinpoche does not like that word. He said that English word does not convey what I'm trying to say. So he, he, he told me not to use it. Instead, I should use this phrase, sudden occurrence. I think it's the same. But, but he says there's a, there's a little nuance, a little difference. Sudden occurrence is kind of like what happens when the weather person tells you conditions are right for a thunderstorm to come. So sudden occurrence means the conditions are right for something to happen in your life. These things come together. Now, you and I would still call this accidental, but they have a different way of looking at it. It's, these things are conditional, and they come together. And so I said to him, I used the example of stepping off a curb and being struck by a bicycle, which has happened to, not to me. I stepped off a, in fact, I fell over a dog, but let's not talk about it. Um, and I sprained my ankle. Anyway, <sighs> long story. Um, but I used the example of stepping off a curb and colliding with a bicycle. I said, so, Rinpoche, what you're saying is that me stepping off the curb and being hit by the bicycle was not my karma, but the, but the sprained ankle 
and the pain and suffering that I received from that sprained ankle is? And he said, that's right. Because it's, as you know, there are people we've met, I mean, maybe you've met people like this. They have terrible illnesses, and yet they're so positive. They're so happy. And they've got a terrible illness that other people would just be, they'd be in agony. But these people are like, da, 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 da. They're just fine. And this is because their karma. Their karma is that they will not experience suffering the way other people do. Because they have this mind that's full of virtue and positivity. Whereas, I've also met people who have had every, every happiness in life. I mean, happiness, not the right word. Every advantage in life. They're wealthy and they have everything. But they have like one little thing go wrong and they're in agony. So they had the karma to have all this comfort, but they also had the karma to be completely miserable. You see the difference? So I don't know if that helped or not. Did that make it worse? Good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 I understand. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and I think that that's uh, one of uh, in Kemper Rinpoche's Kemper Carter Rinpoche's teaching, the five joys of adversity. He he gave this short teaching called the five joys of adversity. One of them was that you recognize uh, that this that this adversity you're experiencing within you is uh, the fruition of your karma. And uh, you make, um, and so you, uh, you make the promise that you will never harm other beings again. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you are convinced of the truth of karma. The other is that you recognize that it is the fruition of karma, therefore you're happy because it's like, now that's gone. I never have to deal with that again. The third one is that you have the chance to practice humility because you have to actually ex accept help from someone when you are in an adverse situation. So your pride and arrogance are reduced. You have more humility. And the fourth one is that you have the, um, you have the feeling of compassion for others because they suffer, because your suffering reminds you of the suffering of others. And then the last one, if I remember this correctly, the fifth one I may, I may miss. Oh, dear. I may, have to, I may have to look the other one up. It might have also uh, had to do with compassion. Oh, that's it. It is the opportunity to practice the, the sending and receiving practice where you uh, take on the sufferings of all beings in the suffering you're experiencing. So it's an, uh, it's an opportunity for practicing. So there's two that have to do with compassion, two that have to do with karma, and one that has to do with humility. So that's how I remember them. Two about karma, two about compassion, one about humility. They're not easy to remember. So that might be the, the way to approach it for now. Yeah, because I, I, I'm like you. I'm not sure how that all comes together. But what Ribache says is he said there's so many conditions always colliding in our world. So many conditions are coming together at any given moment. But the, but the cause 
of something is within us. So that's all. That's the best I can do. We'd have to get him here and get or get a Buddhist scholar in here to go farther. I can just repeat what they said. But thank you. Other stuff. Yes. He's gonna. Yeah. I'm sorry I forgot to repeat the question for the r r microphone, but you can do that. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. First, um, about the drive all blame into one, which yeah. is one of the slogans I remember. <laughs> mm -hmm. I need to go back and read that text. This is a great book. It is. Mm -hmm. um, but it sounds a lot like now, I mean, I've read that book like years ago. Sure. But coming sure. back to it and that slogan. Sure. Like, um, and recently, you know, it sounds like it's talking about fighting your own denial. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was in a 12-step meeting recently, and the topic of or someone talked about coyote medicine mm -hmm. and this idea of is like a Native American concept. I think the same mm -hmm. thing or similar. Okay, which was like you know we we commit actions mm -hmm. and we think everyone outside of us is causing our yeah. misfortune. Yeah. it's really us. Mm -hmm. But you know with. Denial, it's kind of like, you know, it's the spiritual shock absorber. Sure. And it's usually, you know, sure. you can't force people to do something they're not ready to face. Mm -hmm, that's right. So it's kind of like drive all blame into one. Well, what up if you're not ready to drive all blame into one? Then what? That's right. You know, and how do you, mm -hmm. how do you deal mm -hmm. with that? I'm, mm -hmm. I mean, I know that we've had conversations about that. Mm -hmm. and you've, uh, I don't know, mention that I like to poke the air out of people. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's like I have to sit back and let people have their denial because they're not ready. That's right. So it's kind of like, how do you... Well, that's right. Then I've got another, well, and I hear I've got another that. question if you've got... Yeah, uh, let's, start, let's start with that. Um, you know, I think, um, I think what, I, what I understand for, of your question is... It's more of a commentary, but yeah. Yeah, it's more of a commentary like, you know, what role does uh, healthy denial have in Buddhism? And I mean, I'm kind of... I'm, briefing it down. Yeah, 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 sure. But uh, I, I think that you're right, that not everybody's ready. But see, these books are challenging. These slogans are meant to be challenging. They're, they're meant to kind of get under your skin. And the only people who can really effectively poke the, poke the air out of somebody right. is a Dharma teacher. Sure. I mean, really what it comes down to. Uh, because they want, the, they want what's best for the student. And what I've noticed in mind training in general, mm -hmm. uh, in all of the, where they're trying to train you to not be selfish, mm -hmm. they really do use pointed language. They really do use pointed language. And I think that part of the reason they use this sort of pointed, almost confrontational language, is to kind of get you to ease up a little bit. They, they want you to let go of that grip of ego fixation. Sure. And, I think that, um, and I think that's the function. And if they're not ready, then you have to back up. If, yeah. if, if the person is not ready to accept responsibility, then you have to accept that's where they're at. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, th there's time for one. Did anybody else have something? Because you have two questions. Anybody else? I, I got more than two, but I'll stick with two. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. And the other one was, oh, anyway, Anne's got a question, if you don't mind. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, you can stay. I'll, 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 be, I'll be here. Yeah. These are, I mean, these are fascinating. Aren't they great? Like, you know, yeah. Over the years, I've found that it takes me longer and longer to get from my cushion up to the microphone. Absolutely anyway, fine. I, I don't know what that's about. No, but, anyway. Go ahead. Totally up to the cushion. Thank you. So I would really appreciate um, a Dharma talk or a, maybe okay. a year's worth of Dharma talks on the intersection of 
um, Western psychology and Dharma. Mm -hmm. And because there are no psychologists in Tibet. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Buddha did so such a wonderful job of understanding mm -hmm. the psyche. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so... And again, I'm not talking about like a prescription sure. of, you know, if you're anxious, do this. Five yeah, yeah, times, yeah. You mm -hmm. know. No, uh -huh. I'm talking more about, you know, where is that intersection? Mm -hmm. And how can we work with it mm -hmm. to become better human beings? Mm -hmm. I really think this is good. I, I read a very, um, a sort of a provocative article uh, in the Wall Street Journal um, yesterday about um, the cause of. Uh, of so much anxiety and why there's more anxiety here. And, and of course, it's like any other. The fellow is a psychologist. So, I mean, who wrote the article is a psychologist. And I was very fascinated by his take. And so I'll just say something about this uh, briefly now, and then, uh, then I'll, I'll put this in the percolator and see what we can put together in terms of a series of talks on this. Um, it may actually deal with this article, very fascinating. He said part of the reason uh, that we're suffering from so much uh, inner turmoil is because our connection to the outer world has changed. Yes. We're, uh, we're no longer spending 90, uh, 80 to 90% of our day outdoors and, uh, and interacting with other people, you know, in a natural way. And so his take was that because we're sort of removed from our uh, external environment that is supportive and nourishing and, and, and so forth, because we don't have this healthy relationship with the outdoors and the healthy relationship with our own minds, we're, we've become more inward, and that as, as we become more inward, we suffer more from anxieties. And Citrinbache, his opinion was that people in the West suffered from anxiety more because they had actually more personal freedom than uh, people in traditional societies, agrarian societies would have. Uh, because he said in an agrarian society, you did what your parents did. You had a very simple life that was with the earth and in the earth and this sort of thing. And he said, but when you are removed from that environment and you're given all of these choices, he said, you become uh, uh, obsessed with the idea of making a wrong choice. Yes. When you have more choice, you then become worried about making the wrong choice, which I think is really fascinating. And so these two thoughts, that removing, being removed from a, a supportive external environment that's healthy and being more inward, coupled with Sitra Rinpoche's comment about things uh, being diffi more difficult when we have more choice, I think we bring those things together. We can we can have a really great discussion. So thank you. Thank you. So much. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh huh. Comment. We're down the bottom of the hour. Just a, a, a funny comment on the choice thing. I was talking. I went to a new restaurant with a friend of mine, and as a vegetarian, I'm used to there being mm -hmm. two things for me to choose from, and there were like eight at a pub, and I was like, wait a minute, I don't eight I'm vegetarian to, choices yeah, at a pub. I was like, I'm not used to having to actually choose food. Like, what's the not portobello mushroom thing? That's what I want to eat, you know? So I, this is a, the thought of choice made me think of that recent occurrence. But um, I wanted to uh, uh, suggest maybe a, re, uh, uh, a remix or a 2.0 of your talk on anger. You did a series on anger. I did, yeah. About 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
And I, if I recall, we had a sold-out crowd <laughs> for the 11:30 Dharma talk. It was standing room only in our shrine room for that um, for that yeah. talk. Yeah. Um, and uh, the reason I bring that up is a, a friend of mine has recently she's begun dating someone who has a, a deep tradition with Eastern religion. Okay. So she's talking more about that, and we were talking about anger, and, and I said, you know, the thing about looking at your mind is that there are a lot of steps between the, the occurrence and the anger. Right. And it's like driving. Like when you first start driving, yeah. there's 25,000 things you do when you get when you leave the house and try to make a left-hand right. turn, but now you just do it so fast you don't even realize right. what all the steps are. And right. the, the benefit of stopping and taking a look is that you've forgotten how many steps there are Right. and to help recognize how many there are. And then maybe you can stop it before you get to anger. Right. It's kind of our conversation over you know lunch break. Um, Great but, lunch um, conversation. Yeah, I have a lot of those. Yeah, wow. I, I, I'd like to go to lunch with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so, um, so yeah. that I think it was a two-part series on anger that you did. Okay. Uh, I mean, we have the, I know I have, I think, the cassette. Oh, cassettes. Remember those guys? This is a little thing like this. Um, but, um, but so that, I think, also really resonates in, in okay. uh, dealing with, like, political climate and anger. Sure. At, you know, yeah. how we move yeah. forward and benefit beings in yeah. our world, all that's good. You know, I, boy, I really do agree with that. And, um, and, and I've seen all kinds of really cool stuff lately about this disconnection between people that's happened uh, through politics and, the, and society and the economy. When people are disconnected from one another, then they become uh, suspicious of one another, and then that leads to more conflict. So, boy, we could have a ball talking about all those things. I knew I could rely on you. Any, uh, I, I could rely on all of you guys to come up with it. Do you have another? Anybody have it? Yes, what's it? Yeah, we have another. I'm, I, should, I probably should wrap up here. Because uh, well, my favorite one is drive, or no, uh, approach all phenomena as dreams. Oh, okay. Yeah, see all phenomena as dreams. I, I love to talk about these things um, because I have... Uh, uh, I have an insight that comes from studying this book pretty steadily for 15 years, um, because it's what Rinpoche told me to use when I talk to people about the Mahayana, uh, how, to, how to cultivate love and compassion for themselves, and how to cultivate love and compassion for others, and how to cultivate like an inner mind of peace. This is the main book he's had me teach from, and I've been teaching from it for 15 years, so I, like, it's like I found all kinds of stuff in here. Um, and some of it may actually be there. It's like, it's like I'm wondering if I'm becoming a conspiracy theorist about this book. Anyway, the Illuminati. Okay, anyway. Okay. anyway uh, um, so I will check and into that and see if I can give a talk on that as well. If you have other talk ideas and didn't get to tell me what they were, um, you can uh, write them down or hand them to me or you can come up and write them on my... Uh, I have a, a notepad here. Um, so um, I, I don't even know what to say, except I can't thank you enough for being you, and I can't thank you enough for being here. And uh, I am so jazzed to see Haley here. She's, uh, yes, because you see, you've been in Nepal. You've been in, have you been in Tibet yet? Bhutan. Bhutan, okay, the land of the dragon. I want to see how you got your visa. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, yeah they, they don't hand those out, you know. Uh, so, uh, and uh, she started here and uh, went to KTD once, and then I haven't seen her since. So, uh, so, uh, so thank you so much for coming and being with us. And now she's at Naropa. You're at Naropa now, right? Okay. And uh, that's in Colorado. 
in beautiful downtown Boulder. So I'm just so happy that you're able to be here for the, spend some time with us on the holidays. So it's like, thank you. And thanks to all of you who are here today and visiting with us. It's wonderful. And thank you for bringing your sincerity and goodness into this room. So uh, let's sit quietly for a moment and dedicate the goodness of this session. We dedicate the goodness of this session to all suffering beings. May all beings be free from suffering, come to happiness, and then to awakening. And coming to awakening, may they emanate in all directions and benefit sentient beings endlessly. We dedicate the goodness with this thought in mind. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, and thank you, Mr. Soundman. <laughs>